Please join me from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, reading along as I read verses 1 through 7. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the, of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who are under the law. Insert the phrase, in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you're sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The end of the Thanksgiving season marks the beginning of the Christmas celebration. The Friday after Thanksgiving is the busiest shopping day of the year. And about this time, everybody starts criticizing Christmas. You ever notice that? And, and one of the things they say about uh, Christmas is that we don't really know the time that Jesus was born. This may not really be His birthday. Um, a few years ago, we took a trip to Israel. And we arrived in Jerusalem on the 4th of January went out to Bethlehem and found out that the Greek Orthodox Church was preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ that week. It may not be the birthday of Jesus. Now, I don't know when Jesus was born, but I know this, He was born right on time. And so you can paraphrase Paul's statement, in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son like this, God sent Jesus just at the right time. And he gives us an illustration. He tells about this child who is an heir. He says he is no greater than a slave until he has come of age. And so like we, he said, uh, like children, we, you can be an heir of, of a fortune. You can be lord over everything, but you're no, different, no greater than a slave until the time appointed by the Father, until the Father's appointed time. Now whatever else that means, it means that God is in control of time. Nothing is accidental. His birth, His life, His death, none of it was accidental. Everything operates on a preset time predetermined by the Father. Now it was a long time between Genesis 3, when God foretold the coming of His Son, and Matthew 2, when the angels told forth the coming of His Son. But God was getting everything ready for Him to come right on time. It is amazing how prepared the world was for the coming of the Lord. It was politically just at the right time. The Romans were in charge of the empire. They had control of the empire. And because of the Jewish dispersion, there were Jews scattered all over the empire, all the way down to ancient Mesopotamia and to Egypt and down into Italy. 
And everywhere they went, they established these little Jewish colonies and they maintained their faith and they built synagogues. And so when the apostles broke upon that world with the gospel, they had a ready-made congregation everywhere they went. They just went to the synagogues where Jews were worshiping Jehovah God. It was culturally just the right time. Everybody spoke the same language. So when the evangelicals went out into the world, they found Greek, the universal language. Everybody was speaking Greek, and so they didn't have these language barriers to overcome. And they traveled on these magnificent roads that the Romans built. In order to enhance commerce, the Romans built this elaborate transportation system, these marvelous roads. And so while the Romans were preparing roads to enhance commerce, they were unknowingly building a highway for our God. And it was a time of peace so that the Romans held everybody under control and no wars were breaking out. He came just at the right time. It was religiously just right. The pagan religions were impotent, if not dead. And there was this spiritual vacuum, and the heart was crying out for God. Judaism had failed. He came just at the right time, so that after one generation, the whole known world was evangelized. Did you know that two years after the ascension of our Lord, because everything was just right, everybody in Asia had heard of Jesus. The text tells the when of His coming. He came right on time. But the text also tells the how of His coming. For the main question this text, this book, seeks to answer is, what kind of man was this man who came right on time? The Apostle Paul says three things about him. He says that Jesus had a heavenly nature. When he says God sent forth His Son, he was emphasizing His deity. He was divine. He is divine. And there is nowhere in the Bible that suggests that He laid aside His essential nature. He laid aside the prerogatives of His essential nature. And very God, a very God, wrapped Himself in flesh. So that this little baby, leaning on the breast of His mother, was the eternal God who had created the world. And the amazing thing about all of this is that this Word, this man who made, this one who made man was made man. And he nursed at breast he filled. And he was carried by arms that he formed. And this one who cooed and gurgled in speechless infancy in the manger was the Word, eternal Word, that spoke in eloquence before all time. So that when he speaks of God sending forth His Son, he's suggesting His pre-existence. Now, a preacher one Sunday decided he'd give his uh, congregation a little Christmas quiz. On the back of the bulletin, he had a few questions there. And one of the questions was, Jesus had His beginning at Bethlehem, true or false? Sixty-five percent of the people put true. Two-thirds of the congregation said Jesus had His beginning at Bethlehem. He didn't have His beginning at Bethlehem. Before there was a beginning, He was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He is pre-existent, co-equal, and co-eternal with the Father. He had a heavenly existence, a heavenly nature. Secondly, He had a human nature. When the text says that he was born of woman 
he is emphasizing his humanity. He was as much man as if he'd never been God. He knew everything that we know as human beings. He tasted hot tears that flowed out of his eyes into his mouth. He knew what it was to hunger and to thirst. He knew sorrow and pain and discouragement and heartache. He knew rejection. He experienced everything that man has experienced. It was just as important that he was man as it is important that he was God. Because the Bible says that in order for him to redeem man, he had to experience all that man experienced. He had a human nature. He had a humble nature. And so Paul says that he was born under the law. If there was ever anybody who had a right to be above the law, it was Jesus. It was his idea. He had that prerogative. For the law was conceived in the mind of our Lord. He was its origin, its originator. He had a right to live above the law. But he came and subjected himself under the law. He had a humble nature. One time a man asked him, what is the greatest law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. He meant that God was always to be first. There never was a time that he did not put God first in his life, above everything. And so as he wrestled in the garden of Gethsemane, facing death and disgrace, he said, not my will, but thine be done. And he said, I do only that which pleases the Father. And the second great law, he said, was you love your neighbor as yourself. There never was a time he put himself before anybody else. He was always humble. He lived under the law. I got to thinking about this, that this week as I as I prepared this sermon. And so I turned again over to that Exodus account of the Ten Commandments. The law, the law. He never had an idol. He never had an idol in his life. There never was a time when God was not at the center of his priority. His father was, and his father's will had first priority. And he never took the name of God in vain. Never once did he take his name in vain. Not with his mouth, not with his life, did he take his name in vain. And he kept the Sabbath. The Scripture says that on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and opened up the Scripture to read it. And he always honored his father and his mother. And he never had an unrighteous anger, thought of unrighteous anger, he never sought, he never hated one, he never had murder in his heart. He was the most unviolent man who has ever lived. And he never had a lustful desire. You can go to the movies and they can portray that, but he never had a lustful desire. He never looked upon a woman to lust after her and desire her. And he never stole from anybody. He never took anything from anybody, not from their reputation, not from time did he ever take, he never stole from God. Astounding as it may seem, he paid his tithe. He never stole from his father. And he never said a disparaging word about anybody else. He never gossiped. He never slandered them. And he never coveted anything on earth. He never desired, although he never had, he had nothing, not even a place to lay his head. He never coveted the wealth of someone else. He came and subjected himself 
under the law. He had a humble nature. Now this text not only describes when he came and how he came, this text tells us why he came. And there are two purpose clauses in this text. And they both should have the phrase in order that because they both establish the purpose of his coming. One negative and one positive. Now watch this. He came in order to redeem us from the curse of the law and he came that we might receive the adoption of sons. Negatively, he came to redeem us from the curse. The word redeem means to effect deliverance or release by payment. He paid the ransom. It's a marketplace term that everybody reading this passage would understand. He went down to the market where men were bound in slavery and he paid the ransom for their release. And that ransom was his own blood. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save from his boundless love and mercy he the ransom fully paid. He bought us out of, free, out of bondage to freedom. Oh, the wonder of that that he came to where we were bound in our bondages of darkness and death and paid the ransom for our release. But he came in order that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might be elevated to sonship. And John thought of that and exalted and cried, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God, and so we are, sons of God. Listen, I tell you, we gained more in Christ Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. And it ought to be an indictment on every person here that we don't stand in awe of that every day, sons of God, sons of God. I read the story of a little boy who was an orphan, an urchin, lived on the streets, sold newspapers. And every day, uh, this man came and bought a paper, wealthy man, marvelous clothes, beautiful, beautiful clothes. The little boy in his rags was impressed. And he liked the man. He was a generous and loving man. So one day he followed him home, found that the man lived in this beautiful home, beautiful mansion, right at the edge of town. The little boy one day went up, screwed up enough courage, rang the doorbell. The lady came to the door. The little boy said, you have a son? And the woman said, no. As a matter of fact, we don't have a son. The little boy said, you want me? Oh, the wonder of this, that he has an only begotten son, but he wants you. Now, the purpose of His coming was not just a salvage operation so that we would be released from our bondage. That's enough. But in order that we might receive sonship, sonship. Now the Apostle Paul is talking about Roman adoption, a procedure that was different from all other adoptions. It involved two things. First of all, in Roman adoption... The adopted had equal status with everybody else in the family. You know from your Jewish history that in the Jewish home, the older son had the larger portion, two-thirds of everything. Sometimes the girls, sorry about that girl, sometimes the girls got nothing. But in Roman adoption, 
the adopted son got equal amount, had equal status with everybody else in the family. And the wonder of it is that we share equally with Christ in His inheritance. And the second feature of Roman adoption is this, that the adopted child could never be disinherited. Now in some cases, some of the natural children could be disinherited. As a matter of fact, in the Roman home, the natural child, the biological child could be disinherited, but not the adopted child. And what it speaks of to me is security. Once a child adopted into the family of God, always a son, always a child of God. Now these, this adoption which Paul spoke involves two things. Watch this. It involves a likeness to God's own Son. Now the Apostle Paul could have said that God sent forth the Lord Jesus or He sent forth Jesus Christ, but He didn't. He said He sent forth His Son. And I think that phrase is significant. Maybe not on the surface, but as you kind of uncover a few things. Because the, the Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren. And what he's saying is this, that Jesus is the example of what everyone was to be like. Now what he's saying is this, that Jesus, God sent Jesus into the world in order that we might receive the adoption of sonship and become just like Him. So that the purpose of our salvation, the purpose of His... ...saved you. He's in order that you might be just like His only begotten. And He says, and He sent His Spirit into our heart crying, Abba, Father. It's an intimate term and it means this. Watch this carefully. I want you to get this. He sent His Spirit into our heart in order that we might talk to God just like Jesus talked to Him. He wants it to be just like it was between Him and His only begotten. And that's why He saved you. In order that He might shape you into His likeness so He has many sons just like His only begotten. And so that you and He could have this communion and communication that He had with His own Son there is a likeness to God's own Son. Secondly, it, it, it means that there is a legacy with His Son. And so He says that we, have heir, we are heirs through God. There are two implications of that. First of all, there is, the le- there is the legacy of His Holy Spirit. Now when the Christian religion emerged upon that pagan world, they had many religions. You may not know that, but th- that's true. They had more religions than they could count. As my mother used to say, than they could shake a stick at. I don't know where that came from. They had more religion. Everybody had a God. And there were some of these religions that had similarities, that were similar to the Christian religion. Similarities with the Christian religion. In other words, these pagan religions, pagan religions, had some things that had some similarities with the Christian religion, except for one thing. Now, the one thing that made the Christian religion unique was that, was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. For the Christian religion had this unique doctrine that God's life had been imparted, that God had 
imparted the spirit of life to the believer. And no other religion had that, that God had come to indwell the believer. His life imparted. So that in Bethlehem, God entered human history to indwell this earth. But in your salvation, He entered your life to indwell you. He tabernacled in His flesh in the incarnation. He tabernacles your flesh in salvation. And he says that he sent forth his Spirit. And the amazing thing about that is, watch this, that the same phrase, he sent forth his Son, he uses when he says, and he sent forth his Spirit. And what he's saying is this, just like God sent forth Jesus in the incarnation's miracle at Bethlehem, he sends forth the other Jesus to indwell you when you're saved. The legacy of His Spirit. And then there is that future legacy. We're heirs through God. Now I don't have the slightest idea what that inheritance is going to be in that future day. I shared in the early service that it's a true story. I, I can remember as a kid I used to lie in the, you know, in the grass in our front yard. And because I was raised in a Christian home, I've always been taught uh, about the Lord and about heaven. And I, I imagine what... I imagine three male, you know, three male beings in heaven, you know. All of them had a beard, you know. God was a little older than the other two. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And, I, and I'd, I'd heard about, you know, streets of gold and... Oh, you know... I got a mansion on a hilltop, you know, old cowboy singers used to sing. And I, I, had, a, I had a picture, you know, this big mansion that I was going to get. Innocent child. Big mansion with a circular driveway and a Mercedes parked in the front, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, I, don't, I don't have a slightest, I don't have a slightest idea uh, what, what it's going to be, nor does anybody else. As a matter of fact, Peter, in 1 Peter, he tries to describe the, our inheritance, and all he can do is say what it isn't. He says it, it isn't defiled, and it isn't corruptible, and it won't fade away. That's all he can do. I don't, I don't know what it's like. I, I, I suppose it's like you know standing over the crib of a baby and saying to this baby, Hey, you, you, you're, you, you, you're heir of a billion dollars. He, he, he wouldn't know what the slightest. He wouldn't have the slightest thing idea what you were, what you were talking about. And when that kid gets up, get to be about two or three years old, and he's walking out, walking in the house one day. You say, "Hey, kid, you know you, you, you're, you're a heir of a billion dollars." He'd settle for a nickel. He don't know what you're talking about. Now listen to me. I believe that one of the greatest joys of life is discovering is the joy of discovering what we have in Christ Jesus. And just because it's incomprehensible doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And all the joy and the wonder of the discovery of the legacy we have in Christ. I'm surprised that you're not up doing high fives. You know, and that's exciting. You've seen this scene many times in America. A couple comes home with a baby they've adopted. Haven't had, haven't had children of their own. So for years, they've loved, they've longed to have a child. 
and they get one. They adopt a child. And he's, he gets out of the car, and she gets out of the car, and she's got this baby in her arms, and, and, and he puts his arm around her, and he's looking down. He says, hey, big guy, see this house? That's yours. And they go inside, and they, they get inside, and they pass by the pantry, and he opens the pantry doors, and just stocked with food. And he said, hey, big fella, look at this. Look at this. That's yours. And the baby's sucking on a pacifier, you know, just laying there. And they go, up to, they go up to the nursery, and they've spent years getting that nursery ready. Everything is just right. Toys everywhere, perfect colors. They go inside the nursery, and the dad says, hey, tiger, look at here, look at here. This is all yours. And they go over to the crib, the bed, and nice, soft, brand new covers. They roll back the covers and they put the baby in and they stand there, their arms around each other. They look down at the next president of the United States. And they, and they say, isn't it wonderful? They say, honey, sweetheart, hey, big guy, fella, you won't ever have to worry about a thing. All that we have is yours. The kid doesn't have the slightest clue what's going on. One day, he gets a little older and his mind begins to stretch and he begins to comprehend and understand. One day, the eye, you know, the eyes open up and the light comes on and he says to himself, Wow, I'm a, I'm a son. And everything belongs to me. I don't know what, I don't have the slightest clue. I'm like an infant in a crib. But oh, the wonder and the thrill of discovering all that I have in the Lord Jesus. John Wesley was a religious man. He went to Oxford. He started the Holy Club believe it or not, the Holy Club. He was deeply religious. He, he practiced, he observed the Sabbath, just to be sure that, that he didn't miss. He, he practiced, he observed the Sabbath both on Saturday and Sunday. And he fasted and he prayed. And he visited the prisons and he visited the slums. Deeply religious man, he even became a missionary to America. And then he discovered what he did not have. And he came to know Christ in a personal way, and this is what he said. He said, I had the faith of a slave, but I did not have the faith of a son. I tell you, you don't have to go like a beggar begging at the back door of a stranger. You're a son of God. You're a child of God. Sons and daughters. And the greatest thing that will ever happen will be when you discover what you have in Christ. I don't know when He came. I just know He came right on time. I know how He came. Very God, very God, very God, very man, very man. I know why He came. He came that I'd not have to live like a slave 
that I could live like a son. Let's pray together. Father, for the needs of this moment and the decisions that should be made, we pray for courage and faith. That Jesus indeed would be honored and glorified and your will done perfectly. Because I pray in Jesus' name. Now would you look here please. There are three invitations. An invitation for you to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. God's Son sent in order that you might be saved. Released from captivity. Set free from bondage. To receive the adoption of sons. Would you come this morning by simple faith, declaring your commitment to believe and trust on Him. We invite you to come and join our church this morning. It's really important. It is. You live in this community. You need to be in a local church. People say, well, where do you go to church? I'm a member here. It's a witness to it. Young people, college students, maybe God has led you to put your life here with this wonderful congregation of believers. Or maybe you need to come this morning to claim what you have in Christ. And to rededicate your life, to begin a new life, to walk with Him in a more committed way. You're not happy with the way you live. We want you to come. While we stand to sing, we invite your response.